0: Welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series, presented by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm your host, Jack Martin. On this episode, I'm joined by Melissa Tully, an Associate Professor at SJMC and the Director of Undergraduate Studies. We discuss her research on media literacy, the spread of misinformation, and how people engage on social media.
1: So my name is Melissa Tully. I am an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Iowa. I'm also currently the director of undergraduate studies. I have been here since 2011. So I am in, I guess, into my 10th year uh, working at the University of Iowa. Um, I teach classes in multimedia storytelling and digital media production. And I also teach classes about uh, social media and in um, and society kind of issues. So I teach a large lecture class and also I, um, a smaller class on um, social media and activism. Yeah, that's what I do here in terms of teaching and uh, my research, I know we're gonna talk more about that but my research is in, uh, looks at uh, issues related to how people engage uh, on social media. So I, I do work in um, in East Africa, particularly in Kenya. I also uh, do research on misinformation and the way it spreads, and uh, also um, news literacy and some of the uh, strategies and tactics we have for addressing the spread of misinformation.
0: What were your initial interests in journalism?
1: When I, uh, so I went to graduate school at the University of wisconsin uh madison and i was interested in african media studies so i um i worked with uh, a, a faculty member there who studied media in and about africa and i um also did work in african studies so i became interested in um in kenya through a historical lens i actually my master's thesis project was on newspaper coverage of independence um, freedom fighters and independence in Kenya. And then, um, I continued to be interested in Kenyan politics and, uh, and Kenyan, um, and Kenyan media and started doing more research on contemporary, uh, issues. And at the time, I don't want to date myself too much, but at the time blogging was really big and Kenya had a, uh, vibrant, um, blogosphere. So there are a lot of like popular Kenyan bloggers and um, they then you know, uh, actually became popular on Twitter and you know, the way that uh, certain folks who, who are really good at switching from, from, from media. But I, um, I started doing research on Kenyan bloggers and the way that they were responding to political um, situations, particularly around elections. So I really got involved in, in interested in studying the role of digital and social media in um, civic engagement, political engagement, and, and that's kind of been at the heart of, of my work for a long time. And I, I tend to focus on audiences, and I do that you know in various contexts, like social media audiences in the United States, social media audiences in Kenya, uh, and how they engage with information or create information or content on social media. And then when I, when I look at institutions, it's more about how institutions and organizations interact with these publics or interact with these audiences. And so a lot of my work has looked at um, social media as a space of, of these interactions and as a space where we engage with news and information and, um, and misinformation as well
0: how did you develop an interest in African media? What was that? Was there a specific class that you took or was it just things going on in the news? What kind of fueled that for you?
1: Yeah, actually I became interested in, in um, African studies when I was an undergraduate. So I went to Boston college uh, for undergrad and I was an English and communication major. uh, And I was interested in, in, um, postcolonial literature and postcolonial studies and I did that more through literature at the time and so when I went to graduate school I actually didn't really even know until I started looking around that like African media studies or studying media in Africa was was a thing I had come to it through through um, more of a literary background so when I uh, went to Wisconsin they have a uh, an amazing African studies program it's one of the you know it's 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 a premier kind of, um, program for African studies. So it was a perfect place for me because their journalism school has, uh, the kind of research I wanted to do. And then they had African studies. So I was able to learn and build in that area as well. Uh, I was always interested. I was interested in Kenya partially because of, um, through the, through the books I was reading at the time, it's a, um, it's a former, British colony. So they speak English and I was able to, you know, read in English. Um, and then I learned Swahili when I was in graduate school so that I could speak um, uh, and communicate in a, in a local language. There's a lot of languages in Kenya, but English and Swahili are the two main ones and just kind of kept developing my interest there. And then I, I started learning more about about Kenyan politics and, and participation. So kind of what I was what I was talking about earlier and my interest grew from there. So I ended up doing my dissertation research in Kenya. So I lived there in Nairobi. I've, I've gone back and done field work over the years. And that was kind of my main um, research interest. And then in the States, cause it's really hard to do. You can't go to, I can't just pick up and go to Kenya anytime I, I want. I was also doing research about uh, news literacy and um, uh, particularly looking at how we could promote or encourage news literacy and newsletter behaviors on, on um, digital platforms. So starting out with looking at around kind of digital news, like uh, news stories on websites and moving to social media. So I was kind of doing these two things uh, as my two main areas of, of research. And for a long time, they were kind of operating parallel. They were related, but they weren't really crisscrossing. And now in the last few years, I've been able to really bring those projects together. So my current work is looking at news misinformation and news literacy in Kenya. And in Africa more broadly. So I just um, was part of a collaborative research project that we just had our first paper come out yesterday, actually, that looked at um, misinformation in six African countries. And it's a a large-scale comparative project. So I'm really excited right now because I'm doing the kind of research that I've been doing for uh, a long time, but I'm I'm bringing it all together. And and it's it's really been a really fun time for me.
0: What have you notice in terms of similarities and differences between African and United States media especially when it comes to misinformation and literacy because we've been hearing so much about especially misinformation in the last 5 years at this point it really seems like so what have you kind of noticed through all this research that can kind of be compared and contrasted
1: Yeah so when you think about comparative you know research like that you have to kind of think about what what are the factors that you want to compare on, right? So in our Africa project, one of the things that we wanted to do when we were selecting countries, and this can relate to the United States as well, is we picked countries that had different um, sort of levels of, of democracy, you know, more or less democratic regimes, and countries that had more or less free speech. So those are two factors that you can really think about as the things that would contribute to the spread of Good and bad information, right? So, kind of, what what's the government system, and what's the what's the speech laws? Kind of, wh- how how much is speech protected? Uh, you can also think about other factors like the economic development of the country. There are lots of things you can you can you can use as as factors. The um, the media system, like how much of a of an actual vibrant media system do they have, right? What's the kind of news system that exists? So, if you think about the United States, right, we are, you know a more democratic country with more open speech. So we can, we, when we think about how mis- misinformation spreads here, we have to really take those things into account. We have to think about how in the United States, speech is protected, but also we value it very highly. So even in places where uh, you know, it's perfectly legal for Twitter, for example, to take someone off their platform because they violate the terms of service, it's, that's legal. They're a private company, they can do that. As Americans, it, it tends to perk us up a little bit because we value speech so highly mm-hmm. and we value sort of the rights of the speaker so highly. So you have that kind of competing uh, with this notion of like protecting, you know not wanting to spread information, misinformation. And then in, in, in some of the countries that we looked at in Africa, so for example, Kenya, has is it's not fully democratic. It's it's kind of democratic, but the elections the, the past elections have been questionable at best in terms of if they were fully democratic. And it has a it has a pretty open media system. It's not fully free, but it, it's more free compared to like a country like Zimbabwe, which is more authoritarian and a more closed media system. And so what we're looking at there is not only how those different systems affect kind of how um, news and information spread like in a network kind of macro level, what I'm really interested in is what does that mean for audiences? How do people then act in their everyday lives? How do they share news and information? What decisions go into, you know, oh, hitting that, you know, retweet. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic because we, we have to take into account the potential consequences. Like in some countries, you can go to jail. Right, you can be fined. You mm-hmm. could have something really bad happen to you, and in a lot of cases, it's the laws that are supposedly designed to protect people that are used against them. Right, these laws that say, "Oh, it's illegal to spread false information." Well, if you're a government official and you don't like the way someone's talking about you, it's pretty easy to call that false information and to arrest, you know, dissidents. And so there's been there, there's that dynamic. Uh, that I think is really important. And we're seeing, because of the kind of rush of interest in in this space in the last five, 10 years, we're seeing more and more comparative work that's looking across countries and trying to understand those local dynamics uh, and how we can understand policy, how we can understand the role of platforms. So, you know, we're seeing right now with Facebook, like how we navigate, how we regulate Facebook in the United States is different than how countries want to engage with Facebook and other countries so how do we develop laws and regulations for these platforms that are global but they you know it, it, that's one of the really challenging challenging things is when we have we have uh, policy that we have to take into account we have local context and audiences that we have to take into account and we have these platforms the place where we're doing so much of our of our speech it's on private platforms, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. kind of remarkable. And so we're at the whim, both of the platforms, they can change the terms of service anytime they want. And we're also trying to deal with how that that's regulated globally. So it's a long answer. But I think what what's really important is we're beginning to as a, as a field and this work is, is there's a lot of this work looking across the country, excuse me, across the world, we're beginning to really take into account these different factors and trying to understand you know, what we might call the global misinformation ecosystem, right? It's going to operate very differently in specific countries, but by the very nature of the internet and by the very nature of these platforms, it's an interconnected problem. And so how we address it, it's going to take both local being, you know, countrywide, United States, Kenya, Ghana, Brazil, Australia, whatever, but it's also going to take some, some movement on the global front. And that's, that's still to be determined what that's going to look like.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up how, you know, Americans value their speech so much and how when people become, you know, deplatformed or removed from Twitter, it becomes this big deal, especially when, you know, what happened to Trump getting removed from all these different platforms and people were, you know, getting mad about it on, you know, a certain side. But and I think people often do forget that they are on private platforms where you can't just run and say it, that there's rules behind it, but no one ever I guess he reads the full terms and conditions, so okay. you don't really know. But yeah, it's interesting that you say that um, just because it really just seemed becoming such a big and prominent issue, especially in America right now, just because I've seen and experience just with everybody, just this uncertainty of whether or not you're going to get taken off of a platform because you say something. And it's just interesting. It's interesting to see where it's going to go in the next few years. So going off of your research, you've already published a research article this year um and you published 10 last year so <laughs> what 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 were in those articles what was that research focused on specifically from the last year and so far this year
1: yeah the the timing of academic publications is kind of is kind of wild if you <laughs> sometimes you know some of that data is, is relatively new you know 2019 some of it is from projects that started many years, it just takes a long time. So it's an interesting, you know, we don't have to go into the rabbit hole of how academic publishing works, but uh, the general um, thrust of my research recently and if you were kind of to look over the, um, the bulk of that work has been about misinformation on social media um, and particularly looking at different kinds of interventions, so uh, correction, of misinformation as a as a form of intervention and uh, news literacy efforts as a form of intervention. So I do research um, with uh, colleagues, uh, Emily Vraga and Leticia Bode. Uh, we've been, we've done a lot of work looking at um, how to use correction and how to use news literacy on Twitter. And we have a study coming out on how to use it um, for video as well. And that work is experimental. So we've done lots of experiments where we show people different, mm-hmm. um, different like simulated Twitter feeds. And we try to uh, engage with questions of uh, how correction, for example, does it actually reduce misperceptions? Can a news literacy message encourage you to do X, Y, and Z? So you see in that kind of box, body of work trying to isolate um, these certain variables and trying to understand effects. So that's more quantitative experimental work. And then I I also, so I do, um, I do both quantitative and qualitative work and I do a lot of research that is uh, mixed. So I try to bring multiple methods uh, to, to bear on a question. And so I'm also doing the work around misinformation in Africa and really looking at Uh, Audiences and that so far has been more qualitative so interviews focus groups trying to understand the, the, um, the issues, and now I'm working on a project with a a colleague from the University of Houston Danny Madrid Morales where we are actually uh, hopefully soon in the next month or two or two uh, launching a a project in, in Kenya and in Senegal where we'll be doing these interviews to kind of understand the misinformation and news space a little bit more. We're going to talk to like professionals, like journalists and fact checkers and things like that, but we're also going to do an experiment where we do some of this more intervention-based work. And so that's really exciting. That's coming up and that I'm excited about that because we're also, um, doing it in a French speaking country. So Senegal, uh, the, the national language is French. So that's been exciting. But so the work that the, the article that just came out literally yesterday um, was the was the comparative work in Africa and looking at the misinformation um, um, landscape in, in those six countries and, and, and trying to understand uh, why people share content and kind of the motivations for sharing. So in a nutshell you know over that that time that's that's really been what i've been working on um and i'm really focused on this intersection of news literacy and misinformation and how we can better test and evaluate and even understand news literacy so i have a whole kind of body of work with a with a big team there's five of us working on defining some of these um terms and trying to actually measure news literacy um and that, that's an ongoing project as well. So you can see kind of how these things are all coming together. And then the various publications touch on different aspects of, of that research.
0: So you teach a lot of classes, whether it's, you know, multimedia studies or social media. And so how does your research with misinformation and media literacy play in the way that you teach those classes?
1: Yeah. So in production classes, one of the things that I think is really fun about teaching, you know, teaching audio production or video production or photography or whatever it might be, is we're actually approaching media from the side of the creator. So I talked a lot about how in my research, I approach it from the side of the audience. But when I'm when I'm teaching production, I'm often trying to get students to think about themselves as creators, but also the audience that they're going to to be engaging with. And it gives me a chance to to think about that side of the equation and to hopefully have students think a little bit more about how they will convey their information and their stories to audiences. Cause that is something I think a lot about and particularly how they'll do it in a way when they are competing in this cluttered, cluttered space. Right. So talking about Twitter or talking about Facebook, whatever, there's so much news and information out there. How can your content break through, especially when your content is, you know, news, like factual news. <laughs> it's really hard when you're competing mm-hmm. with, you know, with, uh, with, things that are meant to be you know misinformation is meant to be exciting and get your eyeballs and so I think that's important and then in my uh, more conceptual classes so I teach um, social media today which is a large lecture class it's an intro level class and so in there I'm able to bring in a lot of my research because it introduced students to even this, these ideas about misinformation um, the ideas of how of um, news literacy thinking about we ta- we talk a lot about um, social media in different parts of our lives so looking at politics how news and information spread in the political realm and i off, i always bring in examples from around the world I, I do you know broadly i'm interested in global media studies so i bring in stuff from all around the world i think that's important for students to get out of the you know us bubble and to really think about these problems in other in other countries and then in the, my class on uh, social media and activism it's really a class about um, Social movements and uh, activism that are kind of around the world as well. We do we do examples from the United States, but in there we're all, always we're it, it, you know to get people to join your cause is a persuasion effort, and so we're talking about news and information, and we're talking about how uh, opponents of causes might use misinformation to try to devalue it or it, you know, and so there's all of these interactions um, that, that go on in the, in the space around activism and trying to use these tools, uh, to promote certain causes. So I'm able to kind of draw on the, this research in the, in those areas as well. And oftentimes, which is one of the best things about teaching, I get new ideas from, you know, teaching and talking to Mm -hmm. students, things that I maybe didn't see connections between, but the students might see a connection or, and I think that's really exciting too. Do
0: you see students, news and media literacy is it like i guess based on you know we have you have so many coming in and our generation you know i've been on twitter since 2013 and i'm 22 now and even like freshmen now i feel like they've even been on like instagram and facebook and other things like twitch and snapchat like like i know like my girlfriend's younger cousin who's in like sixth grade they were already on all snapchat and tiktok and all this so like do you think that they have like the younger generation, even maybe younger than me, have a better kind of gauge at spotting misinformation just because they've been on it for so long. and can kind of tell like, oh, this like definitely looks fake compared to what I know is real, as opposed to like an older generation who's primarily on Facebook and can easily be tricked into believing that what they're seeing is real information.
1: Yeah, so that is definitely, you know, at the heart of actually a lot of the research. Um, not just mine, but others looking at factors like age, right, gender, you know, some of your demographic factors to kind of understand that. Like we need to know who's creating this, who's sharing it, how is it, how is it circulating, right? And so there has been some research. It's not, you know, it's not conclusive, but some research just mm-hmm. suggest that older uh, Americans, particularly, or older adults even more broadly, particularly in the, you know, maybe 2016, 2017, were more responsible for sharing fake content than than younger. Uh, than younger people but it's not conclusive you know we're, we're still we're still examining that so I think you have a couple things going on with with the kind of age question I always and this is one of the things I talk about in my classes too with the social media class and just kind of talking um, uh, to students and when I talk to parents about what we teach just because you're on a platform and you've been you know you're quote-unquote a digital native doesn't mean you're you're like doing the analysis right that you need to be doing or that you are really thinking through what the content is you can be technically savvy and not savvy on content and mm-hmm. i think so i think that's still an open an open question so for example if you've been getting your information off social media your whole life like from when you were you know 12 years old and you've never watched the you know local news or listen to NPR or read a newspaper Maybe you're really good at navigating Twitter, but how do you know what's credible? And how do you do you even have a sense of where to get your news and information from? Right. That's that's a question that that we're we're still engaging with. And so some of the research on younger people shows that they actually do have that general sense of like they can kind of tell, you know, and they can mm-hmm. recognize news outlets and things like that. But there's a there's a question on on motivation of like. What's gonna What's it going to take for me to spend the time to even read that story or to engage with that topic more deeply? There's a question of, um, of like, you tell me, you know, my teachers tell me I need to dig into this or do this or that. It's like, I don't have the time for that. I don't want to do that. And so there are those open questions of when people actually will take the time. And so that's something that I've been focusing on in my research, too. Like, what does it take to take that next step? And when is it important? I, I I actually believe we don't need to spend forever analyzing everything. You should spend the time when it's of interest to you and when you plan to then participate, right? If you're gonna share or comment or do something, you should know what you're, you're sharing and commenting and, and doing something. So if you're just scrolling mm-hmm. and reading, I don't expect you to spend time, you know, fact-checking everybody or fact-checking everything. That's, you know, nobody has that time. So I think younger people are, are, especially if they're in you know, middle school and high school before we even get to college are the perfect audience to be giving and training with these skills because it does take practice. I mean, and, and we have to make it easy because we all don't have time to do all of that. So I do think that they're, they're ripe for that. And we do see that there is some level of ability. And then older people, I actually believe very firmly that adults and older adults, you know, kind of through the uh, whatever age can learn. A lot of the work that I, that I do actually focuses on the kinds of messaging and the kind of interventions we can put on social media or put on in the spaces where people are actually consuming news to remind them, to give them a tip, because I'm not going to, you know, my dad isn't going to go enroll in a media literacy class, right? right. Like he's not, that's not you know, he, that's not what he's going to do. But if I can, if I can give him a tip, if I can tell him, you know, look at the, you should look for these these things, at least as a starting point. He learned how to use social media, didn't he? He learned how to use Facebook. He knows how to post pictures. He knows how to comment. What's to say that, you know, folks can't learn this stuff. And so I think it's mm-hmm. it's, it's really important. We, we, we talk about these as uh, non-classroom interventions. It's important to do that because we don't want to just write people off or assume they, they can't learn. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done in this space and figuring out what works, what messages resonate with, with what audiences. That's also something that I'm interested in. So like, are there certain messages that resonate more with, you know, thinking about the United States content, con- context resonate more with uh, liberals than conservatives? Is there certain messages that resonate more with conservatives than liberals? And how can we, how can we use what we know about audiences to tailor messages for them? And that's a like a lot of there's a lot of opportunity there. I think to get people to be more news literate or digital literate, um, and actually engage in these in in uh, a more meaningful way. I think that's part of and that's part of the equation. I definitely do not think audiences are responsible for everything. I you know there are a lot of questions about regulation and producers of this content that we we really need to grapple with as well but i think we do have some ability and some control and so we should we should leverage that when we can
0: right and i think even i for me personally i think it's like you have to almost fact check yourself a little bit twitter is my most used social media platform and i mean sometimes if you go to like the moments page or you see something from an outlet that has the check mark and you know that it's like a reputable source but sometimes there's other information that you'll be scrolling and like i've you know personally i remember as i was scrolling the day that kobe bryant passed away i remember seeing that tweet and looking at it and being like no because it was from like a fake tmz account this doesn't feel right this feels like information just because i you always see that kind of stuff and i remember I, i had to google it and double check and confirm that it was real but there's just stuff like that where even you'll see it blow up. Like there'll be like a celebrity death hoax on Twitter and it has 50,000 retweets or um, even the, what followed with Kobe Bryant afterwards, all the conflicting reports from reputable sources saying this is, you know, these many people die, but no, actually it's this number. So there's just a lot of, and I think there's the race now too, to be first and be the first one to go you know viral however you want to say it is just leading to more misinformation, maybe not even, purposefully all the time but just because there's a sense of urgency Mm and being up to like the exact 10th of a second nowadays that it's just
1: yeah no it's not helping i think you captured that really well so there's a good example that was something that you were interested in right so Mm -hmm. for you doing that extra work made sense right you want to know like is this real because and plus you know that fake celebrity deaths are a thing So your, your, your mind triggered both of those, both of those things. And that's kind of what, what I, what I'm trying to get at. Like we, for some people seeing that would have just been like, okay, I'll learn about that when I learn about it. And that's totally fine. It's not in their interest They're and they're not going to go hit retweet, you know, because it's just like a passing thing and doing that work, I think is important when it, when it matters to you. And you mentioned another thing, it's a breaking news story. So if we can convey to people that breaking news is always unfinished and often has a mistake in it. And it's not because it's intentional. Like you said, it could be just a rush or a misreport or we're still gathering. And so I think from the audience side, knowing like just those two things that, that you said could really help you. And so that's something I talk, we talk about in, in my research, people, you know, uh, understand uh, are our understanding that more and more, particularly around breaking news that there's going to be Misreports, and so how can we prevent it from spreading? Well, just like don't, right? <laughs> don't right. share it. Wait till you know. But I also think it puts the onus on the outlets, and 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 you mentioned this as well. Where one of the there's some really great work happening um, at uh, um, UT Tech, UT Austin, and some other um, places where they're trying to understand um, what uh, journalists and news outlets can do to actually help this. And so some of it is how they label. The content right and being really transparent with like we do not know yet or you know this is a developing story and does so i could say this is a developing story you know what that means i know what that means but does a regular consumer know right. what that means and so that's something too like trying to figure out how news outlets can do a better job and journalists can do a better job of conveying um what they know what they don't know where they are with the story particularly for breaking i think is really important And I'm hopeful actually that we're seeing, maybe we've turned the corner a little bit on the being first is more important than being right. Um, I think there's been, you know, the being first has been so important for, for a while that I'm hoping that it's kind of turning back a little bit to, you know, maybe being second or third is better if you're right. And, and partially because there's been backlash, you know, on organizations that have really screwed up, uh, and so it's an interesting dynamic and it's one where we see the dynamic between the audience and the, and the journalist or the news outlet really, really play out. But that's something that in my work in Kenya, for example, uh, people talked about like um, breaking news around like a terrorist attack or something. It's very chaotic. You don't know what's happened, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, like by its very nature, it's chaotic. And people talked about, well, I might still share something breaking or something a little off, because I'm worried and I want to warn people and it's okay if it's wrong, because at least I did, I Mm -hmm. tried, you know? And so I think those are the kinds of factors that we have to consider and sort of really think through the implications of sharing that content.
0: And even with, I mean, social media now, I don't feel like there needs to be that rush to exactly be first, just because of algorithms and the amount of eyes that are putting on it. I feel like when there's big news stories, even if, say like New York times, CNN, both tweeted. It's both going to get a lot of retweets. Like I remember, I don't remember. Maybe it was over the summer when there was that explosion in Lebanon and that video started circulating around from all these outlets. Every outlet had tens of thousands of retweets and so many views on the video. So I feel like it's going to be seen eventually and by the audience that you're trying to reach and you're just going to, people aren't going to keep coming back to it. So like, yeah, I feel like, that being first definitely needs to kind of go into the back burner a little bit as opposed to doing everything right, especially now as these big organizations are kind of always just like facing attacks and being called fake news, even when the stuff that they're reporting is correct. It, then it's just mm-hmm. I feel like there just needs to be that focus to kind of help get rid of that stigma and kind of just like help journalists be so that they're not kind of always being thrown under the bus.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a question of credibility and trust and regaining, you know, what can organizations do, as you're mentioning, to regain trust or to build up their credibility. I think there's a lot of tensions that organizations and journalists feel about how to get content out. And some of it is about the business model of just being completely a mess and not know, mm-hmm. you know, cause we have to think, right. These are most of these outlets also are uh, for profit. And so thinking about how they're, you know they're trying to drive people to a website or to a TV channel for advertising purposes <laughs> and, you know, thinking about that dynamic. So there's so many dynamics that um, come into play that I can, that it's very easy to see how these things happen. And I think um, in terms of like rethinking our priorities as journalists and as news creators is really is something that the industry needs to do and be reflective and say like, okay, you know, things aren't going great <laughs> as an industry overall. How can we, what can, what changes can we make and what, what, what can happen on, on our end to both produce the kind of quality content that we want? Cause journalists will tell you they don't like being wrong, right? They want to produce good quality content. They mm-hmm. want to be seen as credible. And so what can they do while still navigating this super complicated and ever changing social media environment. It's not an easy task. And that's why there's been no, there's been no bullseye yet. Right. No, no, nobody, no outlet has cracked the code on, on kind of all of this yet. And but you're seeing some interesting experimentation.
0: So what kind of tips do you have for incoming or current students, whether it's in somebody who's interested in the social media space or, media research and, or multimedia production, just like what kind of advice would you give to students?
1: Yeah. I think when you're, you know, coming to college, you should definitely explore, you know, your options and opportunities. College is a, is a time where you have more cool classes and clubs and student groups in front of you than you'll, you know, you'll ever have in your life. So I always tell students to take think classes on, on topics that they think, you know, that interest them and really explore those, those questions and those, um, those topics. But then if they come to journalism and they decide, you know, this is my major, this is what I want to do. I think it's really important to figure out um, not like, oh, you don't have to be, you know, a freshman or sophomore being like, this is my career goal blah 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 right we don't know people change their jobs five times in five years that i would never tell you to pick your (laughs) pick your dream job and that's the end goal but i would say still explore so one of the things i like about our major even just at the lower level when you take multimedia storytelling for example it's meant to be exploratory that's the reason we introduce you to all different kinds of tools and techniques for telling stories so that you can then make decisions going forward and keep gaining that knowledge. Oh, and you know, I always tell students, it's just as important to learn what you didn't like as it is to learn what you did like. And then really kind of learning that as you go. So I think that exploring is really important. And then learning about if, if you do want to go into media creation as a journalist or, in, or uh, in PR or whatever field, you need to know something, a topic as well. So then once you do start realizing what you're interested in, learn things about that. Are you, if you're interested in sports, learn about sports, learn more about play than, than just the play by play, right? Like learn about the history of sports, learn about sports journalism. If you're interested in, in uh, global issues, you know, look into international studies and start really, you know, developing that as well, because I think that's going to actually then set you apart. When you go to look for a job, you're going to show you have the skills, the technical skills, the social media skills, right? You can put together. A tweet with a graphic but you also show that you know about something and even if you don't end up going into that field you've shown your employer that you're willing to learn and i think that's really important too so you know using those opportunities to learn and and grow and explore and then building up a skill set in an interest area once you've kind of figured out what that is for you and then knowing that it may change and that's okay because you've actually developed a skill and learning you know learning how to then apply that maybe you then get a job in a totally different area but you're like oh i know how to you know i know how to get the basics i'm going to do this i think that's really enough that's a transferable skill and i think our students are well equipped to do that and our major allows you to do that and just being a a student you know at a at a at a university like ours it has just so many opportunities don't let them pass
0: so okay, I'll just I'll throw this in at the end and then clip it because Jamie wanted me to ask you. So the International Communication Association accepted your research paper for their conference this summer. Mm-hmm. So what is that that you're studying for it, and why is it important?
1: Yeah, so that paper is uh, co-authored with Rachel Young, who's also uh, an associate professor in School Journalism, and um, that work is actually about. Um, Risky online behaviors, so like cyberbullying and sexting and other kinds of risky behaviors that um, adolescents may engage in. And so that mm-hmm. this paper comes out of a project that we uh, that we did, uh, where we interviewed, we did focus groups and in interviews with parents, and we also interviewed children. And then we did a survey with parents and children to ask them about um, these issues, you know, and so to get the perspective of both the parent and the, and the child on um, what kids do online. And so the paper really looks at parenting styles. So the way that parents engage with their children and how that uh, influences what kids will talk to them about and how and how uh, these relationships around these risky behaviors are navigated between kids and parents. Um so the the this whole project is really looking at um, the role of, of parents and children in in navigating social media, digital media, cell phones, whatever it might be, and how um, how, you know, it's a space that's so complicated and kids have totally different perspectives than their parents. Right. Like, and, right. And, and so trying to kind of bridge that gap a little bit and figure out a way that like maybe kids and parents can actually be a little, we're never going to get them, you know, exact, but a little bit closer on, on what they're talking about it and, and figuring out ways for parents to successfully, um, navigate this with, with kids and what, how they should talk to them, you know, what they should talk about. And so it has both, um, some, some theoretical implications for kind of understanding what we call parental mediation and all of these, these issues, but it has practical implications for how we should recommend, uh, to parents or to schools or to other, uh, stakeholders, how you actually engage kids on these issues. And so the paper that we're presenting at ICA is a lot about giving kids, um, um, some freedom. And we, we explore things like kids autonomy versus uh, control. And, and, and what, we're, what we're looking at is how kids perceive that. Like, Do they perceive their parents as controlling or do they perceive their parents as giving them autonomy? And so we're trying to get at kind of that, that in-between space between parents
0: and kids. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, you can find us at uiowa.edu backslash sjmc. For more episodes of the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts.